0: Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. It's Friday, September 2nd, and we're talking innovation and disruption. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined in the studio by Fool premium analyst, Simon Erickson. Simon, how's it going?
1: Great, Dylan. Two of the finest words in investing right there,
0: innovation and disruption. I love it already. Have you tried to reach out to the people at dictionary.com and just get your face like directly next to those definitions? I really need to. That's a great idea. Yeah, one of these days. Um, this should be a really fun show. We are basically going to go through The Fool's Introduction to Disruption, like Disruption 101 class. Uh, and thankfully, I have Professor Simon Erickson to help me out. Um, Simon, when I say it's a class, like I'm not kidding. Like, this is something that we've kind of institutionalized a little bit. That's true. Yeah. Um, you gave a presentation a couple months ago? To fools, like whoever wanted to show up and hang out and listen, check it out. And um, this discussion that we're going to have is also a part of what the analyst development program on the investing team side, um, what those people go through as a cohort when they come in and they kind of learn how we invest and kind of become part of our program. So um this is kind of a look behind how our investing team thinks about some of this stuff, and I think a really cool thing to be able to share with listeners.
1: Yeah, and it's really a neat field. I mean, it's all based off of a, a book called The Innovator's Dilemma, written by Clayton Christensen back in 1997. We incorporated it into our investing process. You see it a lot in our rule breakers service and our supernova premium service. And it's basically the an understanding of why do these huge companies like the IBMs and the Cisco's of the world not just keep getting bigger and bigger and more efficient and taking over the world eventually. There's something that changes along the way, and, and disruption to a very large extent explains what's happening.
0: Yeah, and it's it's something that's near and dear to the Fool's heart. Like you said, uh, a lot of the very successful stock picks from our newsletters uh, have been highly disruptive companies, um, and we've been able to benefit from having folks identify these hot spaces and the companies operating in them fairly early on, and uh, hopefully helped out investors along the way. So, uh, listeners, the idea with this show is we're going to outline basically what it truly means to be disruptive. There's maybe a little bit of a misconception out there. Uh, why investors should care. And then some of the principles that fools use to identify disruption and some of the companies that are kind of leading the charge in some of these spaces. So, Simon, to kick it off, what is disruption as you define it here and as Christensen defines it?
1: Yeah. And so, uh, disruption is based first off of technology itself. And technology definition of that is really just a process that changes labor, um, money materials from something of a lower value to a higher value and so you see examples of this all the time Apple takes radios and processors and compiles them all into an iPhone which is a much higher value for for somebody than just all of those pieces together Walmart does the same thing they take uh, a world-class inventory management system and can work with vendors all over the globe to put those products into a, a discount retailer so technology is how you kind of bring something from a lower value to a higher value but the interesting part is that technology changes over time, and we call that innovation. And there's really two types of change in technology. Uh, one is a sustaining innovation. That's basically, we're doing kind of something similar from what we did before, but it's a little bit better, and uh, it's a little bit higher tech. So, when Apple comes out with the the iPhone 7 mm-hmm. um probably in September here. Hopefully, fingers crossed. It's going to probably look a lot like the iPhone 6. It's going to have probably a better camera, a better process, stuff like that, but it's still based off
0: of that same way that Apple packages products. And that type of innovation, to me, sounds much more iterative. Yes. And the idea being like, okay, we can kind of project where this is going. It's it's easy to see what the ni- next phase of this might look like. Exactly.
1: And, and the other side of that, to answer your question in the most long-winded way as I possibly could, <laughs> Dylan, is sometimes we have disruptive innovation, which is you do not base it off of an established product or a, or a process, it's completely doing something differently, brings a new value to customers through a new technology or a new business model.
0: We can go a little bit more into that later in the show. Yeah, I'm, I'm, we will dive deep into that. But I think just something to keep in mind as you see uh, maybe outlets or podcasts or anyone talking about something that is disruptive, think about whether it is something that um, kind of slightly changes what we already know or is truly kind of coming out of a new space. Um, so, looking at why investors should care about disruption, we touched on how some of the great rule breaker picks, some of the great picks uh, from the Fool Universe, have been uh, highly disruptive companies. Any color you want to add there, Simon? It's
1: uh, it's interesting because the sustaining innovations, the, the improvements that are just kind of complementing existing technologies out there, really benefit the larger firms. They've already got. Um, maybe a plant built out, or maybe they've got a huge process that, that makes them a lot more efficient than than smaller companies can be. And so typically they'll shy away from disruption, which is what makes it so interesting, is that um, disruptive innovation favors the newcomers that have a, a different set of glasses on, they're able to see things differently, bring a new business model out there. Um, I think the reason that that you should care if you're a big company about disruption is let's not forget that, you know, Cisco for Many years was the largest company on the stock market. You know, I believe it had a 500 billion dollar market cap right at some point. Wow! Um, and now it's definitely a shade of that because the business world changes, and you have to keep um, keep pace with those changes, and sometimes disrupt yourself if you're a big company. So, for big companies, for small companies, for investors, it's definitely something uh, that we should all be paying attention to.
0: And your point about Cisco, even if you are not someone that is a highly growth oriented investor, and You don't like the idea of playing in some more nascent spaces, you want to see that some of these stalwart companies that you're invested in are at least considering this kind of stuff. You know, whether it's a small department that's working on projects like this or through acquisitions, just that they aren't going to be passed by by technological change.
1: Yeah, exactly. And the, the real interesting part, Dylan, is that these companies aren't doing anything wrong. It, it's hard to call You know, the managers of these, these giant multi-billion dollar segments of these companies. Um, they're, they're not idiots. They're smart guys that are making great, rational business decisions. Um, it's just disruption looks at, why, why does that not always work? What is it that they didn't see coming that, that changes the business out there?
0: And in some cases, there are characteristics of the business that make it tough to really engage in some of these markets. So, with that said, uh, why don't we look at a couple of the principles that you and some of the investing folks use to identify uh, spaces that are maybe ripe for disruption or companies that are ready to kind of turn the world on its head?
1: Yeah, there's like like you said there's kind of five principles you can look for to predict when disruption is going to hit an industry or a certain company. And so we can kind of walk through those for, for this podcast, uh, maybe one at a time. The first is what we what uh, Christensen calls the, the theory of resource dependence. And he really says that it's it's not the companies, but it's their customers and their investors that dictate how they're spending their money which is crazy, right? You think about it, the companies are always allocating capital, we're going to do this, we're going to do whatever. Um, a lot of times, it's the investors saying, hey, um, we want you to make this acquisition to, to, to juice your return on equity. Or we want your customers might be saying, we want a, a slightly better product that we'll pay a little bit more for, and that guides your, your allocation decisions. But the concept is that a disruptive company will look at where the market is headed and is not as subject to their own customers' Or their existing investors telling them how to spend that money. I've got an example for it. Is oh. it okay if I throw an example? Drop out? Drop an example. Okay, yeah. Absolutely. The, uh, the one of the great examples you said and we've got a lot of these on our on our scorecards from the Motley Fool, but is Netflix? Uh, Netflix, as you and I have, have discussed before the show, had a very profitable DVD by mail business, and Reed Hastings, of course, went out and he said, "Hey, guys." I think the future is in online streaming. I'm going to get a lot more data about what shows people are watching and build this recommendation engine." And A lot of people thought he was crazy for spending money on a market that really didn't exist yet. Uh, But he, in essence, disrupted his own business, and it's proved very profitable in the long run for Netflix.
0: Yeah, and you hear a lot of businesses talk about how you want to cater to the customer and deliver what the customer wants. There are a lot of instances where the customer doesn't know that they want something right. until it's available, and then how do I live without this? You know, like what am I going to watch on Saturday night if I can't stream Netflix? You know, um, and that's something that wouldn't have even really been a thought ten years ago, we'll say. Yep. So um, it, it's sometimes companies have to be willing to anticipate what people want rather than respond directly to it.
1: And you know, on top of that, very true. Both of those. Also, what what is available in the market at the time? I mean, until people really had high speed broadband internet, uh, streaming movies over the over the internet was almost impossible. Um, when that enabled digital streaming, Netflix really took off at the right. It was in the right place at the right time.
0: Yeah. So I see number two: small markets don't solve growth needs. Uh, you want to elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So say that uh, you're Berkshire Hathaway. You're Warren Buffett. I mean, Buffett has. Uh,
1: famously said he he can't go after uh, small fish anymore. He can't go after small-cap companies as investments because he's just not going to move the needle for Berkshire Hathaway. He's got multiple hundreds of billions of dollars of invested capital that he's got to go after, um, You know the Coca-Colas and the IBMs as investments. And it's the same thing with businesses. I mean, if you're just wildly successful and you're doing $100 billion a year, you have to find a market that's existing today that's a $10 billion market um, for you to grow 10%. Hundred million dollar company you just have to have ten million dollars to do the same thing. So, disruptive companies a lot of times will look at markets that the big companies are not looking at, and the example for this one is a Rule Breaker's recommendation: Ubiquity Networks, who's setting up wireless access points to to get onto the internet. And when you think about you know, the internet service providers we've typically had, they lay a lot of cable, they go and they want to dominate a market. Maybe if you have an apartment complex of the D.C. area, you're locked in to one certain provider. Um, I know that game force, very yeah. well. <laughs> huge costs, huge sales force, like to go in and just dominate areas. Um, Ubiquity has no direct sales force, very low marketing costs. And they basically have customers come to them and say, hey, I would really like this kind of product spec. Um, can you can you build it for me? And here is how much we'll pay for it." And it's been really successful in universities and sports stadiums and in emerging markets. Very, very, very profitable business.
0: Yeah. Um, very interesting. So, number three, moving along, markets that don't exist can't be analyzed. I think this might be one of the most interesting points that we'll raise during this show. Uh, it's my favorite of the five. Oh, theories, is it? Actually, yeah.
1: <laughs> and in fact, Dylan, sh- can I ask you, how, how did he come up with the name The Innovator's Dilemma? Do you know what that actually refers to? I don't. It's an interesting thing, because The Innovator's Dilemma is if you want to get into something new, you don't have the data to support that decision necessarily, because it's new. You don't know if it's going to work or not.
0: So, So the idea is, like, you are you're working on a hunch and not much more in, yeah. in some cases yeah it, you know it would
1: be a, a no brainer if all of the data told you hey this new market that nobody's going into is going to be wildly successful but you don't get that you've got to kind of jump out there ahead of the pack and in fairness if the data suggested it everyone would be doing it exactly so <laughs> so that's the beauty of the book of the innovators dilemma. it's always forward looking uh, it's not looking at financial ratios and uh, a lot of what wall street kind of lives and dies by uh, is is things like margins return on equity return on invested capital this is always a framework looking forward even, um,
0: even something like addressable market yes you know exactly. which is something that we, we like to look at when we can but you know if you don't even know what a market's going to look like or what the scale of a technology might be it, it's kind of a fool's errand to even put a number on it yeah exactly and let's go back in time to like
1: 2004 2002 um, social media social networks. Facebook is the example for this one. I mean, this was something that most people didn't understand. You, you kind of had MySpace and a couple others trying to figure this out out there. But Facebook was so far ahead of the game of the larger competitors in traditional space, um, that they just learned a lot more about what people were wanting to do on social networks. And then they collected all that data and did targeted advertising. And of course, now it's a more than a $300 billion market cap company.
0: And I will say, um, I saw an interview Zuckerberg did recently um, with the founder of Y Combinator, and he asked him, what was one of the tougher things you experienced as CEO and in the development of Facebook? And he said, people not seeing the vision that I see. And these were not external folks, these were people that were internal employees, members of the management team, that were disappointed when Facebook decided to shun early buyout offers. Right. And you know he saw this huge potential to get beyond colleges to become this huge platform that kind of connects everybody, and they didn't, and they actually a lot of them actually left when they decided to reject that buyout offer. Um, so this is not something that's limited to your average investor or you know mom and pop at home. This is something that. Even people in the space might not be 100% capable of kind of grasping market size. Yeah.
1: And, and just like you said, it's got to be the right person too, right? You've got to have the right vision and not somebody that's leading you in the completely wrong path that maybe they think is, there, is the future of the business that really isn't. So good point on that too.
0: <laughs> and, and even beyond um, the platform itself, you know we can look at the idea of markets that don't exist, can't be analyzed or can't be totally grasped with Facebook. In the context of its pivot to mobile, yeah. a lot of people were pretty skeptical of Facebook's ability to monetize mobile audiences when they saw that that's where the majority of web traffic was going, and clearly, it's worked out for Facebook. You know, uh, I mean, they. Basically, what, like quintupled in, in value uh, as they've really successfully pivoted to mobile. Now, mobile makes up, I think, 85, 84% wow, of their yeah. total revenue take. Um, so, this is not even necessarily something that is limited to when a company's first starting out. It can be something that, similar to the idea of streaming video with Netflix, happens as a company sees opportunities and maybe leaves some of the market behind because they don't.
1: Yeah, and it, and it turns out, um, interesting as this might be, that predicting the future is actually pretty hard. Yeah. It, it's not so easy to just have a crystal ball and say, we're going to put billions of dollars behind this, this new market that doesn't exist yet. Um, a, a story I love to tell when talking about this one was back in the year 1980, AT&T hired McKinsey to do a study of how many U.S.-based cell phone subscribers they thought there would be by the year 2000. 20 years in the future, put yourself back in 1980. They're saying, "Hey, there's this new thing called a cellular phone. How many subscribers do you think it could possibly reach by the year 2000?"
0: I- any shot on what the the estimate was? Oh, all right. So, do you have any idea what population was back then? Just oh, so gosh. I can kind of anchor to it. <laughs> I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna say uh,
1: 40 million. Good guess. Um, the the actual estimate that that McKinsey was one of the best consultants in the world at the time. Keep in mind, they said it would be about 900,000. People. Wow. And the actual number by the year 2000 was 109 million just in the United States. So it just shows how hard it is to look even five years in the future and predict where the market is going to head. But you do have to look at some point at, at smaller companies that are going in a path that, that everyone else is not going in.
0: And I think that segues very nicely into number four on our five point principle list here capabilities define disabilities. And I think this kind of plays into the idea of smaller companies maybe being able to be a little bit more nimble, and um, there being a certain stodginess with being a larger company and being a little bit more fully formed.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, we, um, it, it's kind of an interesting way of how how you can define culture in a, in a bunch of different ways. But one way to possibly define culture is how decisions get made at a company. There's typically certain metrics that in a boardroom of, of a business um, Managers and big wigs of the companies are using to base whether the decision is good or bad. Uh, is this bringing in a certain amount of cash flow? Is this a good return on our investment today? Do we have customers lined up that are ready to do this kind of stuff? And that's interesting because those capabilities of you know how how, do, how a business is making a decision, its culture, and, and how it's deciding on things, can actually kind of handicap it in looking at all of the stuff that we're talking about um, today example of this is is the large regulated utilities. Um, When utilities spend billions of dollars to build a new power plant, they mandate a certain return on equity and a return for their investors that they can pass along to shareholders. Um, It's heavily regulated by the states, um, and that's kind of how business is done. These are huge decisions. And then you've got this small, scrappy company called Solar City. Oh, I think I've heard of them. Yeah, yeah. a time or two before. <laughs> um, one of my favorite companies. Apparently, Tesla also likes them, trying to acquire them. right Yeah, now. Elon Musk seems really that's like that's right. <laughs> but uh, they said, you know, hey, it doesn't have to be this way. Um, if you can figure out how much how much electricity one house needs, you can size a solar panel on the rooftop, and then just have that produce all of the electricity you need for that one house. We can size those accordingly, and actually, if you'll pay us on a monthly basis for that power, you don't have to put up the twenty, thirty thousand dollars 30000 to build it yourself." Totally disruptive idea, didn't have the same metrics that they were using to make decisions, because they weren't building these giant power plants, and a very disruptive company to the energy industry.
0: Yeah, and that is a little bit of an inside example, one that um, maybe need to know the industry a little bit better, understand how it works, to fully grasp. I think, to go back to Netflix, they are another example of a company that, even by name, kind of shows that they weren't limited to the business structure that they had when they first started. You know, I've heard David Gardner make this point before, and I think it's a very bright one. They're called Netflix. They were not called Movies by Mail Flicks, you <laughs> right. know, or, or like, that would have been redundant. But, um, you know, like they were not tethered to this idea of being a by mail company. They were a in digital company that pivoted when they saw the opportunity, um, and and their name suggested that. So uh, you know that's tougher to recognize, but something to kind of keep in mind. I don't know how many examples will show themselves like that, but um, there are different ways that businesses indicate I think their flexibility and how nimble they are. And any indicator you can find there could be helpful in looking for some of these more disruptive companies. And
1: David has many times called Reed Hastings the smartest guy in the room in any room that he's in, which is a telling sign of exactly what you said that he saw changes in the industry that he took advantage of.
0: Yeah, I certainly wouldn't fight that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, our last one here, number five, technology supply versus market demand. You want to uh, dive into that one?
1: Yeah, a lot of times um, companies get real excited about their technology and they just try to. Kind of push it to the limit, and they say, "Hey, we've got the the greatest in the industry widget that's going to do something ten times better than what you even need it to do in the first place." Uh, which sounds great, but that's actually completely inefficient. Uh, you want a technology to meet the market's demand and do exactly what the market is asking you to do. Otherwise, you're probably spending a lot too much money or way too much money of your of your R and D efforts on developing something that isn't even needed in the first place. So the trick is is kind of to see what is it that that your said market wants your industry to do. What what is the value you're bringing to your customers? What are they asking you for? And how can you hit that right in the sweet spot so that you're not overspending or you're not underinvesting, but you're going right after what they're asking you to do?
0: Um, I'm curious what you think about applying that type of approach to Tesla. And the idea of refining, you know, they started with a very elite luxury product and The difference is, they went small market first and created an excellent product, reached the high-value markets, and then slowly have decided to make it more accessible, build up their scale. Would you say that that might be an example of a company um, being limited in the scope of technology and maybe not spending as much in R&D as they would have had they been more ambitious, but doing it in kind of a smart way?
1: Yeah, interesting example. Um, Actually, electric vehicles were talked about in, in Christensen's original book, 97 decades before that's early did. on yeah, exactly right so they kind of were discussed i think tesla uh, early on was more about the brand than, than the car and its performance they really went after the highest end so they could start at at the top of the market and get everybody to want a tesla that all the movie stars and leo dicaprio had and then if you had a tesla at the mid market or at the uh, the lower end that were affordable you were buying into a luxury vehicle i mean it's a tesla this thing is awesome Uh, Even though it might have cost, you know, I think the next one is is supposed to be thirty five thousand dollars when they come in Model Three. Um, So I think that that might be one. The the one I like, Dylan, is actually a company called Splunk, Mm -hmm. who can just look at a ton of data out there. And distill it down into a very simple dashboard for their customers to understand, and so examples of, of who they're working with. They're working with the San Francisco 49ers. They're looking at oh, I was not a, expecting yeah, a sports what, example. What cokes and and what kind of hot dogs people are buying in different sections, and maybe they can market to them. Uh, Domino's Pizza uses Splunk to know what regionally um, is selling better, if they. Jalapeno pineapple pizza is only selling in Cleveland, Ohio. Maybe you go after more marketing there.
0: I have a feeling it's not Cleveland, Ohio, <laughs> yeah. for jalapeno pizza. I right. mean, I know Sean O'Reilly, host of the energy industry focus show, has one of the blandest palates. Ooh, I've I've come across at the fool, and he's from Ohio. We might have to ask him if he would eat a pineapple jalapeno pizza. I'll follow up with him okay. after the show. <laughs> Probably not the best example on my part, then. <laughs> but the idea being, they are uh, kind of teasing out. Insights from data and kind of helping businesses make smarter decisions. Yeah, and,
1: and if you're a, if you're in a boardroom, you are not a maybe maybe you're a CEO, your decision-making manager. You don't want a whole lot of data; it doesn't mean anything to you. You want to say, okay, what is this going to matter to me? And Splunk does a great job of distilling all of that down into saying, hey, what are you trying to accomplish? Let's look at all what the data is telling us, and let's move forward from that. So, um, again, hitting the sweet spot: what is the market demanding? What do they want your product to do? Customer uh, or company is going out with the technology to achieve that.
0: Yeah, I think sometimes you can over-deliver on the tech side or on the capability side, and it's just extra. Yeah. Or, you know, your, your customers aren't seeing the value, and you've spent all this time and ramp-up getting it there, and it might not even be a very useful feature or add-on. So, um, definitely something to keep in mind. Absolutely. So, those are our five points. Anything else on the topic of innovation or disruption that you want to give for listeners here, with Simon?
1: Well, I guess to to wrap it all together, uh, Dylan, there's only kind of three points that I try to have my key have as my key takeaways when you're looking at disruption. And the first is how does the industry define value? Uh, What is it important that your company needs to achieve that is valued by your customers? And that's a really hard question to answer, especially for markets that don't exist. But that's one of the keys of whether your company is successful or unsuccessful is are you correctly going after the things that your customers want you to be going after? If you're achieving them, there's a high likelihood that you will be a disruptive, successful company. Um, the second one is is what is the position of the incumbents? What is going to be their reaction to what you are doing? And are they going to come in and just crush you and do it better because they've already got an established process, or is there truly something that's keeping them from pivoting to what you're trying to do? And then the third one I always say is is who's in the captain's chair? Who is the leader? Like you were talking about with Mark Zuckerberg. Or, or Reed Hastings that's making these decisions, and are they valuing the future of the company, or are they just kind of looking backwards? Um, and that plays a, a huge role in, in whether it's successful or not. So, those are my, my three key takeaways from disruption.
0: Yeah, because these different principles we outlined are great, but they are only so good as they're eventually being an end customer or they're not being, oh, that aha moment from from a big company and just coming in and squashing them. Um, so, I, I think those are kind of good things to keep in mind and nice caveats to have. Um, Simon, you've obviously drawn quite a bit, a bit of inspiration from Clayton Christensen. Um, I understand that you're going to be interviewing him. Yes. Later this month, next October. month, October. next month. Yep. Okay. Couple months. Yep. Um, so I know he's written some other books. He's got another book coming out. You want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, he does. He's he's got another book coming out right now. I don't
1: believe it's been published yet, so I don't want to talk too much about it. But keep in mind. Uh, he has influenced all of this thinking, and, and I think he's just a real visionary guy, a very forward-looking guy, an author, started as a Harvard Business School professor, still teaching there today, in addition to writing books and influencing business leaders. Uh, but we're really looking forward. I'm, I can't tell you how excited I am about this interview. We're going to be posting it all over uh, our sites. You know, It's definitely going to be influencing our Rule Breakers service and our Supernova services. But really, any anybody that's a growth-minded investor, I mean, I think this is... This is something you at least have to keep an eye on
0: and be aware of. So, folks that are looking for some more information on this, uh, stay tuned. I, I will probably steal Simon again and have him talk about the interview that he did with Clayton Christensen as a little follow up in a month and a half or so. Uh, but if you're interested in learning more, I would certainly read Innovator's Dilemma, and I would check out maybe some of his other books. Um, and you know, that's another great place to kind of jump off and dive into this topic a little bit more. Uh, otherwise, I think that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. Yeah.
1: I, I suppose, Hey, I, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for, for inviting me for this show. This is a real fun one for me.
0: Yeah, I, this is like your your Christmas morning. Right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out and say, hey, you can shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com. You can always tweet us at mf Industry focus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, you can subscribe on iTunes or check out The Fool's family of shows at fool.com slash podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned, so don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. For Simon Erickson, I'm Dylan Lewis. Thanks for listening and Fool on.